This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There are a lot of people out there who are sane and normal who voted for Trump for various different reasons. And I think those people will be paying attention to what happens in these courts. The president is not limiting his contest of the election to the courts. He's flooding the zone in order to amplify what he is doing on Twitter and in the media, which is spreading massive disinformation. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. And elections, like the one we've just been through, elections in some ways are like the debates we do at Intelligence Squared. They have winners, and they have losers, and they have rules. But elections also let the presumed loser challenge the outcome. That's why we have recounts after some elections and lawsuits. Challenging election outcomes is not anything new. But the campaign of litigation by a still unconceding President Trump is something that he's really going for it, calling the election flawed in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Nevada and on and on and on. It really kind of sets a new standard for challenging a national election this way. It's much bigger than what happened in Florida in 2000. Now, of course, all of this is Donald Trump's right, but is what he's doing good for democracy. This week, I'm online with two legal experts who are going to argue it out over this question. We're not going to be talking about the merits of the cases themselves. That is an entirely different debate. But we're just going to be talking about the fact that these cases he's bringing to court actually exist, that they're happening, and asking, is that a win for democracy? So I want to introduce two people to the conversation. First, I want to welcome Rebecca Reufig. Rebecca, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You're a former Manhattan prosecutor. Uh, now you're a law professor focusing on lawyers' ethics and the history of the legal profession. So welcome to IQ2. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to introduce the other end of the conversation. We might say your opponent, depends on how this flows, but I want to welcome Ian Basson, a former attorney in the Obama White House and the co-founder of Protect Democracy. Welcome, Ian. It's great to have you with us at Intelligence Squared. It's great to be here with you and with Rebecca. So I'll start with you, Rebecca. On the question, are Donald Trump's lawsuits challenging the election good for democracy? Are you yes or no on that? I'm yes. Um, that's my short answer. <laughs> uh, I can certainly elaborate. Um, I, You know, one of the things that I think um, is important to distinguish is rhetoric from actions. And I think the danger here, I think that Ian and I would probably agree on this, that the danger here comes from Trump's rhetoric. And my view is it's much better to have this out in courtrooms where we're governed by rules of evidence, ethics rules, testimony is taken under the penalty of perjury, than have it out on Twitter. And so I think the lawsuits themselves are good for democracy. So that's my pitch. All right, great. That's your elevator pitch. And I want to bring mm -hmm. him to Ian. Ian, you obviously, because you agreed to do it in the conversation, to take the other side of that question. But I will go through the formality of asking you on the question, do you stake a position of yes or no, whether Donald Trump's lawsuits challenging the election are good for democracy? No, I, I don't think they're good for democracy. And I think there's three primary reasons for that. Um, first, um, I wish it were true what Rebecca's saying, that there are these cases that are going to be litigated in court, and that's a proper place to have out legal disputes. Um, that's true as an empirical matter, but that's not what's going on here. These cases are not being brought in good faith. And I think when you use an institution of our democracy like the courts in bad faith um, to bring frivolous cases uh, that don't really have support, um, that undermines the proper use of the courts. You're not using the courts in the proper way. Okay, Ian, may, may, I, may I jump in and ask you to hold off on your second and third reasons? because you'll have plenty of opportunity to, to bring those forward. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Okay, thank you for that. So I want to get the conversation then launched. So Rebecca, you gave us your elevator pitch. I think if I were to um, to repeat back to you what, to what you're saying is that you think that the president is 
employing legal means, that the instruments are there, he's employing them, and to some degree you trust those instruments to reveal uh, legal truth and perhaps other kinds of truths as well, and that you're saying the rest of us should trust the system to process his challenges in a meaningful and correct way. Do I have that right? Absolutely. That's right. So where does that trust come from? Just take a, we're, we're, all, we're, all, we're off the elevator now and uh, <laughs> we have plenty of time to stroll. So keep going with your argument. Okay. So, um, you know, first I want to address something that Ian said initially, which is, you know, that these lawsuits are frivolous. I don't think there's any sign yet. Maybe some of them are borderline frivolous. I, I, you know, I would agree I'm an ethics professor. And if any lawyer is bringing into court a clearly frivolous claim, then that is absolutely um, not allowed. But that's a lot that's very different from saying it's wrong to bring a claim that you know will lose because lawyers do that all the time. And people bring grievances to court all the time that are, you know, definite losers. And they may do it for motivations that are bad, but our system is meant to absorb that. And I think the important thing also is that you don't as, as somebody who cares about democracy and somebody who's been, you know, looking at these institutions and looking at the attack on these institutions, you don't want to be in a position of saying, don't go to the courts, don't, you know, don't go, don't test this out, because that's playing into the hand of the other side being, you know, what do you have to hide? And the thing is, I don't, you know, as long as you're going through established mechanisms, I've got nothing to hide. And I don't think the Democrats have anything to hide and they don't have anything to worry about. And I think Joe Biden's attitude of kind of rolling his eyes and laughing about this and letting Trump have his tantrum in court is actually long run the most helpful thing. And it's partially because, you know, when you look at the um, Trump supporters. I think people on the left sometimes make this mistake, which is they conflate all Trump supporters into his base, into the people who will be convinced by QAnon and basically anything that Trump says. But that is not the 70 million people who voted for Trump. There are a lot of people out there who are sane and normal who voted for Trump for various different reasons. And I think those people will be paying attention to what happens in these courts. And they may be suspicious of government institutions. They may think government institutions mess up all the time, but it, they also have some degree of faith in the courts. So if this is litigated in the courts and there's no sign of any fraud or any substantial fraud anywhere that could overturn these results, then in the end, we have an election whose legitimacy has been Confirm. All right, let me swing it back to you, Ian. Now, I, I asked you to hold off on your other two points, so I want to give the opportunity to take this in the direction you want. You can continue with those points or respond to uh, what Rebecca just said, or maybe fold all of that together. But the floor is yours. Conveniently, I think Rebecca has teed up the, the two other points that I wanted to make because I hear Rebecca to be saying uh, a couple things. One is um, that it's a good thing that these disputes are going into the courts because if they were not going into the courts, there are far worse places to be having out this argument that could be more dangerous and good that it's happening in a forum that has some structures for it. The problem I have with that is that's not what's going on. The president is not limiting his contest of the election to the courts, nor is he really using the courts to be the ultimate arbiter of the, his contest to the election. What he is doing is he's using the courts in a cynical and manipulative way to elevate his extrajudicial uh, challenges to the election. So he's he's flooding the zone, as his former advisor Steve Bannon said, with um, a sort of excrement from farm animals in the courts in order to amplify what he is doing on Twitter and in the media, which is spreading massive disinformation about rampant allegations of uh, election fraud or earlier today before we recorded this, that there's some sort of def defect in the computer systems. Um, and the, the, the purpose of these court cases is to create delay, to create more time for confusing the public while undermining and discrediting news outlets who are designed to help the public separate truth from fiction, while at the same time stacking the government with loyalists and pressuring state officials to change their adjudication of election results. So if it were just, let's let the court settle this and then we'll accept the result, I think Rebecca and I would be largely in agreement. The problem is, I don't think that's 
the, that's what the president is doing with his court cases. So just to clarify, Ian, you think that there is no element whatsoever of good faith in what the GOP and, and the president are doing in this instance? That's that's correct with respect to how they are using the courts. Right. Uh, and okay. just, just as one example, in the state of Pennsylvania alone, by my count, there are now 19 cases filed in the state of Pennsylvania, either by the Trump campaign or allies of the Trump campaign. If there were a legitimate dispute about something going on in Pennsylvania, it would be appropriate to have a court case. Uh, maybe there are two different court cases you want um, to resolve the matter and then say, hey, let the court speak. But the fact that there's 19, the fact that today a challenge to ballots in Michigan was accidentally filed uh, by the Trump team in the federal court of claims in D.C., which is the wrong court for it. That's where you contest uh, disputes over um, uh, contracts with the federal government, suggests this is not actually a good faith legal strategy. This is a, a tactic for disruption. Let me let me bring it back then to Rebecca. Um, Rebecca, you're hear, hearing Ian say that He's making the presumption that none of these challenges are made in good faith. What is your response to that assertion? Um, I'm willing to accept that assertion and still stick to my point. I don't okay. think it matters. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I don't, it, yes, I, 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 I would concede that. I mean, I, I, maybe there's one case or two cases or, you know, a few where there's some facts that are um, real, but certainly not enough to over to change the election in any single one of these states. That's that's as far as I understand, and I, I would imagine Ian has been following these more closely than than I have. So, can you can you um, dig a little bit deeper on on the argument that he just made that um, if 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 none of them are made in good faith, then they don't uh, they don't deserve the the attention of the court the energy of the court the the cost of the court that that that's harmful in itself and and cynicism inducing yeah i mean i just you know i i don't think that's the way our courts work i think our courts are often used in these sorts of ways i think the idea that anybody you know that we would impose this kind of barrier or a gateway to enter a court where you have to truly believe that you know your grievance is you know justified and you know, we would have a, a lot fewer cases than we have right now. I mean, but 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 my main point is, I think to the extent that Ian um, is correct, and I think you know, I think he is largely about you know what what the president is trying to do with these court cases. I think that it will backfire. I think that strategy of you know confuse, delay, and undermine is working in terms of rhetoric, and it will fail in the courts and is failing in the courts. So to the extent that what ends up happening, as I said in the beginning, is we push this into the dark corner of the conspiracy theorists who we would never reach before. But you know, these outcomes can actually convince people. I think there are people who are already looking at them, who are conservatives, Trump supporters, who are seeing this and changing their minds. And again, you know, I think there's this problem, which is that people on the left tend to caricature everybody um, who votes for Trump or would prefer him for president than Biden as this, you know, ridiculous individual who's, you know, not smart enough to be able to process information. And that's just not true. And I think we're never going to hit his base. He's going to do this no matter what, whether he had the courts or not. And his base would follow him to the end of the earth. And there's, you know, that that's a whole different story. How do you, you know, and I leave that to in the work of his organization. How do you educate the public so that there are fewer people like that? That's a totally different question. But in terms of these court cases, I think we do end up picking off people who are who are who are not those people and convincing them of the legitimacy of this election and that's a valid thing to do regardless of what the motivation is of the litigant here so ian you hear you hear rebecca saying she trusts both the system and some significant portion of trump's supporters to to validate the election, not just uh, on the facts that would be presented in court or turned away from court, but also in the minds of those supporters who might have doubts now, but could be persuaded by a failed effort to stop the election uh, through the court system. Yeah. Uh, so, so Rebecca offered an olive branch to some of the things that I was saying and offered some agreement to them. And so I want to return the favor and offer an agreement to something that Rebecca said, which was that we, you can't treat all Trump voters as a monolith. 
right? Um, that there's a, you know, it's 70 million people, right? It happens to be five to 7 million people fewer than voted for his opponent, but it's still 70 million people. And they are of many diverse perspectives. I think it's important to keep that in mind to Rebecca's point that there are some people you will never convince of anything, but there are plenty of reasonable people who will be convinced by things and will be convinced ultimately to accept the results of the election and move on. The question for me, and I think the question of the debate is, is using the courts to get there in a way that I think now Rebecca and I agree is somewhat cynical and disingenuous, good for our democracy. And I think the reason it's not is because it poses a real danger to trust in the courts, because I think Rebecca's argument rests in part on this expectation that the courts will ultimately adjudicate these, and if they are indeed frivolous, throw them out, and that's going to lend legitimacy um, to some people. Here's the problem I have with that. The president has proven time and again that he is not going to honor uh, the decisions of courts that rule against him. Um, in fact, he is already on the front end, um, I think, done damage to the courts by saying the Supreme Court will rule for me and overturn the results of the election and the courts are going to step in and they're going to save the day for me. On the front end, I think that's dangerous because it suggests to people that courts are not independent arbiters and are already captured by one side. Of course, on the back end, if he loses, we can fully expect that he's going to attack the courts and the judges themselves who issued those decisions as corrupt. Why do we know that? Because he's done that repeatedly. When Judge Curiel uh, ruled against him in the Trump University case, he attacked the judge's uh, ancestry. Um, when a federal district judge in Hawaii ruled against him on the Muslim ban case, he called him a quote-unquote so-called judge. Um, the president got into a sparring match with Chief Justice John Roberts over whether there were Obama judges and Trump judges and suggesting that judges are not uh, independent. He attacked the judge in the Roger Stone case. He attacked judges on the Ninth Circuit as making the country unsafe. The fact that we can guarantee that he's going to attack court decisions that don't go his way, uh, I think poses a real danger for the many millions of people who are then going to lose faith in the courts. And so to Rebecca's point of, but how do we get the reasonable people to accept the results? I would argue that there are better ways of doing that, such as, frankly, where are the Republican senators and House members who know a lot better telling people the election has been resolved, it's time to move on? That, to me, is a much healthier way to move the country forward than throwing the courts into a dangerous politicization dynamic where the president is going to sow a lot of doubt and distrust in an institution that it's really important for the American people to respect uh, going forward. Rebecca? Um, you know, I think that's a really good point. Uh, but I, 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 I still disagree. And, and for the following reason, it's something that I said earlier, which is I think that one has to separate out President Trump's rhetoric and the power of President Trump's rhetoric and his actions. And I actually, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been writing and have been, you know, for, for the past, I don't know, four years about the destructive power of his rhetoric. So I, not to minimize it, but um, there are also ways in which he acts to corrupt democratic institutions. And these two things are different. And there's a limit to the power of his rhetoric. I know it seems like it's almost limitless, but it isn't. And I think that's the important thing. Where, how does one limit the the scope and power of his rhetoric? And I don't think one does that by resisting um, what looks like his effort to test things in court. I think instead you act like the adult in the room and you say like, okay, you know, go to the courts and, you know, all one after another of these cases are getting thrown out. And I don't think, I think at a, you know, a certain point, rational people, and again, I believe there are some people who are irrational, are not going to say every single court, you know, what, I think Ian mentioned how many cases there are. I don't know exactly how many there are. But that starts to look like a vast conspiracy. I mean, if you're going to say the courts are corrupt and they're all against me, he probably will say that. But there are, that becomes increasingly hard to believe for rational minds. And so that's why I think this, in the end, is really useful because it 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 does start you know there's a point at which not to everybody but to some it looks ridiculous and at that point they you know they leave him and i you know not leave him not leave trumpism necessarily or not leave but 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 leave this fight 
yeah, accept the outcome, accept the outcome and move on. And, you know, and maybe move on a little bit from him. I mean, if he's left in the dust looking silly, you know, I, I know it's like, you would think like, why, why, didn't, why hasn't he been left in the dust looking silly years ago? But, um, you know, I, I think that this could, for some people, make him look like a sore loser who's crying, you know, and, and fussing about leaving his, you know, job and not accepting this loss. And I think that could pick off some people. And I think that's valuable. Rebecca, I want to, I want to, you know, talk about if this, if the shoe are on the other foot here a little bit. And and we have a couple of examples where we have the 2000 election where the Supreme Court ultimately made a decision about, about vote counting in Florida that threw the election to George Bush and not to the Democrat Al Gore. And, and I think you know that there are Democrats who to this day don't accept the legitimacy of George W. Bush's presidency because they feel that the election was stolen from him. And then in 2018 in Georgia, the governor's race, um, Stacey Abrams to this day truly refuses to concede. She feels that the election was stolen from her. And there's a sort of uh, uh, a deep a deep well of suspicion and a sense of having been cheated in, in those places. And I'm wondering whether those two examples challenge your notion that people can accept and get over it in time. And that, as you're saying, the court process would be part of that. But what, what strikes me is that things are so polarized that there really aren't going to be many people switching sides on this issue of whether the election was yeah. tr- stolen from Donald Trump. I, you know, I don't, I, I find the um, comparison, Mitch McConnell also compared um, Donald Trump's lawsuits to um, Bush v. Gore. And I, I see these two things as entirely different. And I think, again, Ian would agree with me on this. I mean, that was, it's there were 500 and some odd votes that were at issue in one state when one state could flip the election. And I think, you know, that's a situation in which contesting it publicly, screaming publicly that this is not, you know, it's like, well, I don't know, one case can go the wrong way. And, you know, you have a Supreme Court that's divided ideologically. And I think that really does create um, some kind of question about what was the accurate result. And what, you know, is this, is, do we have to live with this as legitimate? I, you know, I just think this is different, because it's like, you know, there, 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 there's not, there's not one case, it would have to be widespread, massive, conspiracy-like fraud. And that's why he can't prove it. And if he if he could prove it, I would want him to go to the courts. I'm with you. I don't think he can. But I, you know, I think there's a difference between saying, you know, it came down to five votes and we're not really sure who those five votes were for, or, you know, the hanging chads or something like that, and feeling, you know, at the end of it, some kind of sense that, you know, at, at the end, we, we didn't win. I, you know, I still being somebody who believes in institutions, I think it's unseemly. I mean, I think even after Bush v. Gore or Stacey Abrams' election, that one should concede and move on. But I, I still think this comparison is a little bit off because they're so different. Ian, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, th- we both agree that this is very different than Bush v. Gore. I think we may disagree a little bit about what the upshot of that is and what it means for the question of the debate, because I think, again, another thing we probably agree on is we don't want elections to be resolved by courts as a general practice and a general matter. Um, our courts are already are being asked to resolve the most controversial questions of the day in a way that is unhealthy and unsustainable long-term for courts. We want the most controversial questions of the day to be resolved in more representative bodies like like Congress primarily. Um, And as a result of courts taking on these incredibly controversial questions, they are getting hyper-politicized in ways that I think are unhealthy. The most political question of all is who won an election. And so I would I would assume that Rebecca would agree with me that we don't want courts to be the ultimate arbiters of elections. We only want that to happen when for some reason it's absolutely necessary. And I think in the case of Bush v. Gore, um, there was a legitimate dispute there that whatever we think of the ultimate outcome, I think we both would agree that was a case that sort of, it made sense that parts of it got litigated. If we can avoid election disputes going to courts, that's better for democracy. And I think what's dangerous about what the president is doing here is where do we go in the future, right? If future election contests do have valid legal claims and they're brought to court, 
I think there's a reasonable basis that people will roll their eyes a little bit about it, given how Donald Trump has sort of salted the earth on the idea of using courts to resolve legal cases. On the flip side, if there's a future election where there is not any real genuine dispute, as is the case here, isn't the loser going to feel some degree of pressure from their voters and others to do what Trump did and contested in court? Because isn't that the new norm? And I think that's a bad direction for us to go in by by putting courts in that position where they become the default uh, sort of final arbiter of elections. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Rebecca, where, where is the point if Donald Trump and the GOP continue to do this? Where is the point that they run out of game time for this? Um, you know, if, if, if there's nothing in the system that prevents them from trying again and again, or am I wrong about that? But again and again and again and again and again. Well, I think there's there are deadlines, and I I, I would think Ian would probably be um, in a better position to answer that question than I am. But there's the December eighth deadline, and then the December fourteenth deadline, as I'm as I understand for the electoral college. And I mean, I don't think they have the capacity through through lawsuits to push that off. I mean, there's been lots of discussion. Could they flip um, electors? Could they make le- state legislatures change their mind and, you know, choose choose a different way for selecting legis- uh, electors and so forth? I mean, you can, you can go through, you know, the sort of narrow um, way in which this could actually change the result. But I think almost everybody would agree that that's really highly unlikely. So, you know, to me, it's like, you know, looked and to can address- we both stipulate loony and dangerous too. <laughs> right, 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 right. Sure, sure. And I mean, so just to address Ian's point before, I just, I guess here's the thing is that I, it might come down, the difference between the two of us might come down to my thinking that these institutions are more resilient than he does. And maybe that's an optimism that's misplaced, but I just don't think it's so easy to do what he's suggesting is possible. And, you know, to me, it's like at the end of this, what does it look like? It does not look like, it does not look dignified. It does not look like the new normal. It looks like this was a mess. And I mean, I agree if in the best of all possible worlds, you would have Senate Republicans behaving differently. You would have Trump himself behaving differently, but we've had this administration and the Republicans who have supported it just plow through certain norms. And we can't just sit there and say, abide by the norms, abide by the norms. It's not, like we're so far past that. And so given that that's not going to happen, then I'm for this, which is fine. Then, you know, try to see if you can get any support for this rhetoric in our institutions, because you can't. And that, to me, is the best way, given our reality. I mean, you know, we can wish for a different one, but given our reality, that's the best way to address this problem. And I do think it, it, rather than buttressing the claim, it undermines the claim of, of fraud and persistently. And you can, you could say maybe people will be confused or maybe he can undermine the courts, but it just seems that he gets hard, that gets harder and there are fewer people who believe it. And that's important. Ian, it sounds like you agree with Rebecca that the scenarios such as, uh, faithless electors, you know, switching, switching their votes or say the legislature of, Pennsylvania, which is controlled by Republicans, deciding to ignore the popular vote in that state and send their own slate of electors to the electoral college. You think that those are those are not those aren't even remotely likely to happen. I mean, they're unlawful, they're cranky, crazy, and they're dangerous. I mean, they are, you know, they would constitute a direct assault and attempt to overturn the will of the American voters. And I think thankfully that's why the leadership of the Pennsylvania legislature has said that's crazy and we're not we're not going anywhere near that. Um, I think the difference perhaps, you know, Rebecca alluded to being an optimist about institutions. I'm an optimist uh, generally about life, but I think I probably do have a bit more um, wariness about the ability of institutions to protect themselves in part because of um, 
what I perceive to be happening right now around the world and in the United States with respect to democracy and democratic institutions. And, you know, frankly, this is why we founded an organization called Protect Democracy, because we are living in an era right now, the, the early 21st century, where democracy is in retreat around the world and more authoritarian forms of government are on the rise. Um, if you look at data from a place like Freedom House, democracy had been spreading to more countries and improving in the countries that it was in, in a pretty much upward trajectory through the latter quarter of the 20th century. And then sometime in the early aughts, it begins to reverse. And you see that from Venezuela to Poland, from Hungary to Turkey, from Brazil to India, these more autocratic leaders rising and pulling the threads out of democratic institutions. And of course, here in the United States, as we have seen over the last four years, we're not immune to that. And so I am a little bit more concerned about the stability, the long-term stability of our institutions in the face of this kind of global assault on democratic institutions. And I think the fact that the United States elected an autocratic president, and but for the pandemic, I think it looks like he might have actually gotten reelected, should scare the bejesus out of us about just how vulnerable this country is um, to whether something like that could happen here. And so that makes me much more nervous when a Trump-like figure um, begins to do the playing with institutions like courts that he's doing here for all the reasons that I've alluded to as, as the danger that can portend. There, there seems to yeah. be a... V- oh, you go ahead, Rebecca. Sorry, I was just going to say, you know, I I, I, I I take your point on that. But what, what one does about that is a very complicated question. And to me, I don't think that you're going to be able, part of it is, um, you know, what one does as a strategic matter. And part of is how do you sell that? And I think the idea selling, like, don't go into courts is a very hard sell. It's much easier, much simpler to say, fine, test this out. We have these institutions that are there to um, arbitrate truth. And they have all these mechanisms that are that are there to do that. And you can watch it in action. And I mean, you know, we, we one good thing is we do have a, a electorate that's much more excited and paying much more attention. So for better and worse. So you, you, you know, I, I don't think the answer to this question, I don't think the way to make courts stronger is to say, don't go to courts, don't go into courts with these kinds of, um, with these kinds of grievances at this point, I think the answer is fine, ha- go ahead. I mean, you know, of course, again, I think it would be better if he weren't, if he didn't have these complaints and he just were to accept the result of the election. But given that he's not, this is really a good way to protect the courts. I think it it shows that they are even-handed because if it were one court, for sure, like Bush v. Gore, I mean, that did a huge amount of damage to the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. But I think it really is hard to say, well, you know, after at the end of this, when we've you know brought courts in like a ton of state courts and federal courts, and we brought things up to the Supreme Court, and in the end, they all are rejecting our claim to then say, yeah, and that's just because courts are corrupt. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible to get there, but it just seems that's that that would that does require a great deal of ignorance on the part of the people who are watching. But we have seen a, a successful discrediting of all kinds of institutions, law enforcement, the media, etc. And um, wh- why would the court system be immune from that sort of uh, corrosive impact on its reputation if Donald Trump continues to? So take take the Mueller investigation. Um there was, a, I mean, Trump's rhetoric surrounding the Mueller investigation from day one was, you know, destabilizing, harmful, harmful to the legitimacy of law enforcement, um, to the independence of law enforcement. I 100% agree with that. But the Mueller investigation, and one can criticize it for all sorts of reasons, but it came out with a set of facts. And basically, you know, whatever, there was the whole thing and Barr rolling it out. But in the end, do people really disagree about the facts that were presented? Do, is is the is was the legitimacy of that investigation undermined in that particular way? Actually, it came out intact, and it came out intact by the it, through this mechanism, which is um, career officials keeping their heads down and doing their work in the way that they've always done their work before. And so, you know, I, again, I'm not saying that, you know, this is a perfect system and that we won't have damage to the institutions or even to the courts, but how do you deal with it? Do you, you know, scream and, you know, say, don't do this when, you know, it's like, you can tell him to stop. 
his rhetoric. It's not going to work. So what do you do when he does it? My answer is you 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 do what you would do when there's a bully, which is you just, you know, you keep your head down, you kind of laugh it off and you keep doing what you were doing before, which is like, I, you know, these courts, they decide cases and they have rules to decide cases and they, you know, take testimony and they keep doing their job with their heads down. That is the best way to address, to, to counter that narrative and to t- try to tell him, don't do this and abide by the norms. It's like shouting into a, you know, <laughs> into outer space. Yeah. It's like, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> so Ian, I, if, my if, view is this is the best, given, given the bad hand, this is the best we can do. So Ian, if you're, if you're a judge, in one of these cases, this storm comes to your courtroom. What, what do you think that's like for these judges these days? I can't imagine they want it. Um, and this, and actually, it's interesting you ask that because one of the things that I was going to talk about is how part of the problem with, um, and uh, it's not just the Trump campaign, but it's the lawyers that are that are representing the campaign. Part of the problem with what they're doing is, I think they know that the normal mechanisms and tools that courts use to deal with abusing the court system are unlikely to come into play here. So for example, there's a rule in the federal courts called Rule 11, um, which is basically a rule that says if you come into court and you know you abuse the court process by bringing frivolous cases that don't have any business coming to the court, you can be sanctioned for doing that. It's a rare step for a court to take to sanction somebody, and to Rebecca's point, for a good reason, because you really do want the court doors to be generally open for people to bring in grievances. Um, I think that the lawyers here realize that you know judges are very cautious actors. The notion that a judge would sanction lawyers for the president of the United States in an election contest for bringing a frivolous claim, just as a matter of totality of circumstances, is almost impossible to conceive happening. And I think the lawyers probably bringing these cases full well know that, which means there's something going on here that isn't operating in the normal space that I hear Rebecca to be relying on for her argument, which is courts have tools and rules that sort of are able to police what goes on in them. I think the problem with the actor here being the sitting president challenging a presidential election is that just as a matter of real politique, which goes on in courts too, those tools are disarmed because judges are just not going to do that. Um, and you know that may be a bad thing, but that means we're operating in a little bit of a different space with the courts than the normal ones that I, I generally agree with, Rebecca. This is courts are a good place to resolve disputes. And I think the president's team and his lawyers are cynically taking advantage of that. And I also want to say that I hear Rebecca in part, and I'm sympathetic to this, to be taking somewhat of a fatalist view, which is, well, because this president is so corrupt in so many ways, he's going to do so many bad things, like, if we have to pick one, I guess, let's pick the courts. Um, And there's some truth to that in some ways, but I think it lets too many other actors off the hook. Um, You know, I mentioned, and then we sort of breezed over, but Republican office holders have have to be doing better than this. They shouldn't be let off the hook. Lawyers who are officers of the court should be doing better than this, and they should. So what, be let but what's off the not hook. letting them off the hook? Just calling them out. Um, well, correct. I mean, right here. So, for example, we've got some major, you know, major international law firms that are representing uh, the Republican National Committee in some of these cases. Um, they, they they are taking some uh, public pressure. The New York Times ran a story about Jones Day uh, representing uh, some of the actors in these cases the other day. Um, but what I mean here is, rather than say, "Well, the Republican senators aren't acting," and I guess these lawyers are going to take the paying client and do do the deed, um, let's let's not just gloss over that and say, so therefore, I guess the, the court is the best way to resolve it. Let's let's say to those Republican senators, hey, there's long-term damage being done right now to the foundations of our democracy, allowing this frivolous contest to play out over time while the president sows horrible and horrible disinformation and gins up voters to think the election is stolen. Don't you care about the country? Do you realize the long-term damage this is doing? When are you going to act? Let's let, Let's put the onus on them. So I completely disagree about the lawyers and I, you know, there's, there's that, um, there's that article and there's also the Lincoln project that's now, uh, you know, which has done all sorts of great work, but that's now posted the names of these lawyers and their telephone numbers, um, in, in vague, vaguely threatening kinds of ways. And I think that's completely inappropriate and not because I'm the kind of, um, you know, ethics scholar who thinks, well, you know, every unpopular cause deserves a lawyer, which I do think, but that's not what's at issue here. I would hardly call, you know, Trump unpopular with his 70 million 
votes. But I, I think that, um, that, that, you know, in a way, because I don't think the lawsuits are bad, I don't think the lawyers are doing anything bad. I think that they, you know, in fact, by taking these, by 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 taking this avenue, they're exposing, they're you know, putting the lie to his rhetoric, and that's what's been happening so far. And I think that that's okay. And so I really don't think that you know this, you know, targeting these these lawyers for doing this. I mean, again, if these if the suits are frivolous, sure, but. I don't know. I mean, as you said, it's very rare that Rule 11 is used. Their states have uh, equivalent um, rules, all of them. And um, there's an ethical rule that prevents you from bringing a frivolous case. But it is a very high bar. And it's a high bar in regular cases. You're probably right that the courts would be even more reluctant in a case like this. But, um, you know, that's not the main mechanism that courts use in order to make sure that they um, remain arbiters of truth. And so I'm not so worried about those. And I also think that, you know, these attacks on the lawyers, it also plays right into um, Trump's hand when he's, you know, this sort of anti-elitist thing, like if no lawyer will represent him, it's like, that's just, that just gives his base, like, you know, just raw meat, you know, of course he's entitled to have a good lawyer here. And you know, you may not want to hire that lawyer. It's a business decision on the part of the lawyer. You don't have any, any, like, of course not. Go to a different firm. But the idea that these lawyers should be shamed to me is such a huge mistake. Let, let me, I, I want to be very clear. I agree that the naming of individual lawyers and posting of phone numbers and going after lawyers who represent unpopular causes um, is a dangerous uh, direction for the legal profession. And, I, and I'm, I'm not endorsing um, that. And, and I think it's really important that we protect the right of unpopular litigants to have representation. What I am objecting to, though, is, and, and I want to sort of zoom back out to the, you know, 100,000 foot level, which is, there is a frontal assault going on right now on the very foundations of American democracy and our constitutional form of government. A frontal assault, an autocratic assault on our country. And it is of a piece with what we're seeing happen all over the world. Um, these autocrats from Venezuela to Hungary to Poland, we, we surveyed a panel of the sort of leading scholars who study um, kind of autocratic takeovers of democracies uh, several years ago. And they said to us that in all of these countries, um, the autocrats basically do six things. Um, first, they politicize independent institutions. And John, you referred to this earlier, the FBI, law enforcement, uh, uh, military. Second, they spread disinformation. Third, they aggrandize executive power and try to undercut checking institutions like courts and legislatures. Fourth, they quash dissent. Fifth, they delegitimize vulnerable populations. And sixth, they corrupt elections. And in the last four years, Donald Trump has done all six of those things here. And he's done them faster here than Erdogan did them in Turkey or Putin did them in Russia. And so where I, where I um, depart from, from Rebecca is I'm not treating Donald Trump as a regular normal litigant. I'm not treating Donald Trump as a regular, normal president. I am treating him as a black swan, abnormal attacker of our democracy. And I think that as a, I'm a member of the bar, Rebecca's a member of the bar, we have certain obligations as members of the bar. And and if you read the New York State Bar Rules, for example, not to do anything that would harm the administration of justice, helping enable Donald Trump's assault on our democracy harms the administration of justice and harms the foundations of our country. That is different than a lawyer just representing a client to me. Yeah, I mean, I just disagree with, you know, they are not representing him in his whole endeavor. They are representing him in these lawsuits. And the lawsuits, to me, as I've said, do not, in my mind, undermine um, faith in democracy. They, in fact, do the opposite. They they are putting the lie to his rhetoric that's dangerous to institutions. Rebecca, in, in making that argument for the yes side, and you just stated it, that these lawsuits are good for democracy, and you're saying because they would give the lie to the system, um, in that, I think you're you're saying that that Biden supporters should therefore also be okay with the process and and trust the process. But implicit in that, I'm wondering is an assumption, perhaps on your part, and also Ian, that the process will reveal that there's nothing there that 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 there was no cheating, that nothing went wrong, and this is in a serious enough way to count. Sure, there might be individuals here and there, but but are you both assuming that? And especially you, Rebecca, because you're saying the process will vindicate the 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 the, the declared uh, result. Are you assuming that there is not going to be anything there? And if there were something there, 
would you still be making the argument, if there was more suspicion that there was something there, would you continue to make the argument that this is good for democracy? Or would that actually enhance your argument that this is good for democracy? That if there's something there, it should come out? <laughs> Absolutely. If there were something there, it should come out. I mean, but I suppose that all rests on something. I mean, the thing is that in all elections, you know, there there are, you know, you're going to find some, you know, tiny percentage of error, um, you know, people voting their grandmother's ballot. But it's just that study after study shows that that is such a minor Peace, and if there were some massive change here, where there's suddenly some fraud that hasn't existed before, then I really think we'd know it by now, and we wouldn't have to wait for the courts. And you know, I, I agree with Ian. Ideally, until you know that there's something that these election officials have done wrong, why would somebody else in government, whose you know obligation is to look out for democracy and you know, has a fiduciary duty to the country and responsibility to the constitution, why would that person question um, the validity of these elections? And you know. I think that that's true. It's just that he, the, we have the president we have, and he has a lot of people who listen to him and believe him. And I think that the best way to say, no, you know what, that's just not true, is to say your chosen venue, the courts, has proven that you're wrong. And yeah, sure, he'll go around and say, no, no, they're all Democrats. And but sometimes it's hard for him to do that. He doesn't always win with that. And I and I just think that's that's it's not the it's not, you know, the best choice, but given the hand we have, it's the best choice we have. Pick your battles. So it's like you know, you have to be careful and you have to be careful that if you're just, you know, if you just get hysterical about this and you choose every way to push back, some of those ways are going to backfire. And I think right now saying we should, we sh he shouldn't be allowed to use the courts. And I know that's not exactly what Ian is saying, but it, it, it's beginning to sound like that from some people who are making this argument. That does not sound democratic. That sounds illiberal. And, you know, yeah. I understand the distinction and it's subtle and I get it, but I just think the far better position to take is one of confidence here and just say, you know, go ahead because our institutions are strong. Yeah, Ian, you're not saying that, but I'm wondering though, Ian, are, are you somewhat heartened by the results that have come so far from virtually every one of these cases that has come to conclusion, being dismissed, thrown out, turned down? I I, I am, and and so just I think this actually I'll to help serve Rebecca's argument here by just quoting a couple of uh, lines from these cases to make you know sort of uh, let's hope Rebecca's right, and this helps persuade people, right? So Judge Tim Kenny, um, in denying a request to delay the certification of Michigan election results, said this court finds that while there are assertions made by the plaintiffs, there is no evidence in support of those assertions. Um, Judge Cynthia Stevens wrote, "quote On this factual record, I have no basis to find that there's a substantial likelihood of success." on the merits as relates um, to this case. Uh, so, you know, I think that it's, we are getting those decisions, but, but um, really important to underscore what Rebecca said that, you know, you have 150 some odd million people vote, you're going to have um, irregularities or errors here or there. That's just the nature of the size of it. But the issue is you won't have anything that's not that's nearly on a material enough scale um, to tip the outcome of the election, right? This was not, at the end of the day, a close election. But um, the purpose of these cases is to try to find one little thread, one little you know scintilla of evidence here or there, and then through propaganda and disinformation, um, stir it up into a fake controversy that sows doubt in our electoral system. That's what the cases are being used for, and I think we have to be very careful um, to, to to guard against that. All of us as as consumers of the media from allowing that to take hold. What do you think? What sort of precedent is being set by what we're going through right now, and or 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 what what habits are being um being developed in our politicians? In other words, are we going to see this happen election after election after election, do you think? Or is this one time only? That's my fear, right? That, um, you know, it's interesting. Rebecca said at the very beginning that lots of people bring sometimes frivolous cases, um, but we want to keep the court doors wide open. Um, and I, I definitely agree, we want to keep the court doors wide open. But we're, we're talking not about lots of people here, we're talking about the head of state. And one of the thing that one of the things that heads of state do 
um, in in countries is they set norms and they they establish patterns of behavior. I mean, and I think that you know the New York Times editorial on the way that uh, President Trump's rhetoric has changed norms of behavior and has led to more bullying in schoolyards is just a, a sign of how dangerous it can be when the president sets bad norms of behavior. And so when the head of state signals to the public that courts are places where you don't have to have a legitimate dispute to resolve, but you can deploy them as tools in cynical ways to fight election results you don't want. My fear is that becomes a norm that then gets deployed in election after election in ways that are harmful for elections and harmful for our democracy. What do you think on that question, Rebecca? Is, is it, are we seeing a new normal here? I mean, you know, I, I, I can't look into the future, but I don't think so. I think that the, you know, like many leaders, he's unique in certain ways. He's unique in what he can get away with. There's, um, you know, a, a kind of swagger that he has that that works for him, and he's able through his own sort of. I think it's actually his own conviction and in, in his always being right that he's able to convince other people that he's right. But I, I don't. You know, I, I just don't think this is generalizable. I mean, I do. I am worried about the question about norms and how norms get eroded, and I think that's significant. But I don't think that the, you know, actually filing lawsuits is really what, one of those things that I'm most worried about. I mean, I think it's the norm being broken of not conceding and not sitting down with the successor. I mean, those things bother me, and they're concerning. But I don't think those are necessarily starting a precedent. And I don't think that there's any reason to think that the lawsuits would be, you know, that would be something that would pick up as as being popular while the rhetoric wouldn't. Well, the next few weeks are going to tell us a lot. And um, if if things work out, perhaps we can have the two of you back to continue this conversation. I I do want to say this, that um, I've really enjoyed the degree to which um, you were able to disagree in a respectful way. And, and I say that recognizing that the two of you do share the same basic set of facts and the same idea of what is reality, sometimes more so than some of our other debates. So that made it more, uh, it made it easier to have this conversation. But it's clear that you have a very, very distinctive uh, disagreement on this question of whether the, the courts uh, uh, and the reputation of the courts are being permanently corroded by this, or at least temporarily corroded by this or not, and whether this is good for democracy. But I appreciate uh, the, your your uh, respect for one another and that that came across and you shed a lot of light, taught us a lot of things. So Rebecca and Ian, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. I, I also learned a lot from Ian and um, this has been a great conversation. So thank you for having me. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs> 